Now Korah, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, along with Dadan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and on, son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben, took 250 Israelite men, leaders of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they confronted Moses. They assembled against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Then he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy, and who will be allowed to approach him. The one whom he will choose, he will allow to approach him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company, and tomorrow put fire in them, and lay incense on them before the Lord. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You, Levites, have gone too far. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you Levites, is it too little for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to allow you to approach him in order to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the congregation and serve them? He has allowed you to approach him and all your brothers Levites with you, yet you seek the press food as well? Therefore, you and all your company have gathered together against the Lord. What is Aaron that you rail against him? Moses sent for Dadan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come. Is it too little that you have brought us up out of land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also lord it over us? It is clear you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of this man? We will not come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy cry uh, is an intense one. This prayer of confession is an intense sort of posture to take this morning. But if you are familiar with number 16, you will know that we are in intense territory this morning. So we're going to buckle up together and we're going to see what we can learn. Thank you for joining us this morning as we continue in worship together. I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Pasadena. If you have a Bible with you, uh, you should grab it and you should turn to Numbers 16. If you don't have a Bible, the odds are you have a phone, which is my least favorite way to read the Bible. But it still works because it's got words on it and you can also look up number 16 there. We're going to move around a little bit today because there's a lot to cover. And uh, let's see what we can learn together. And ask if you would pray with me as we uh, prepare for the teaching.
God, for the things we've done and all that we've left undone, we pray for mercy. And for all that is good, all that's blessed, all that is grace, we give you thanks. Now in this time, open our ears and our eyes and our hearts that we might encounter you in a new way. Be with my friends here as they walk this journey with me into your scriptures and into this crazy story. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us for the last like three months or so, we've been in the book of Numbers for quite a long time, then you have a sense of where we are in the story. But I always feel like when you preach through a text that is this unfamiliar, and who has heard a sermon on the rebellion uh, at Korah? Great. So this means I can say absolutely anything, and I'll be fine. Uh, I need to orient you as to where we are in this story one more time. And this is going to be familiar to those of you who've been with us for quite a while. Uh, if you are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, then you'll know at least a little bit of this background. But I'm going to get us up to this point in Numbers 16. So the book of Numbers is the fourth book in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew scriptures. The first five books of the Hebrew scriptures are called Torah or the teaching or the law. And the book of Numbers is the fourth. You've got Genesis, which is the story of like early creation and then the story of the lineage of the nation of Israel. Then Exodus gets them into the land of Egypt where they are. What are they in Egypt? Let's just see how we're doing here. Great. That's good. Okay. There are slaves in Egypt. It's not great, but it's good that you know that. Uh, they are slaves in Egypt. And so for the first, uh, like 12 or 13 chapters of Exodus, uh, God begins this series of like wonders that pull them out of that land. And this is the big moment of deliverance for the people of Israel. This is the moment when they get to name this new God that they have met, that Moses introduces them to or reintroduces them to as the God who saves. Then they're brought out into the wilderness or the wild spaces. Actually, the name of the book of Numbers in Hebrew is Bamidbar, which means the wilderness. Uh, so they are brought out into the wilderness to meet with this God at Mount Sinai. So Mount Horeb or Sinai is this really holy place where they're given the law, the commandments, the Ten Commandments. We all know that part, right? That happens at Sinai. And then they travel from Sinai toward this place called the Promised Land. And the Promised Land is this new home that they're going to be given by God. It's the fulfillment of all of these hopes and dreams. But it takes a long time to go from Egypt to the land of promise. The land of promise is known as Mirhav or a wide open land. The land of Egypt is known as Mitzrayim or a constraining and a narrow place. And in between those places is the Midbar or the wilderness. So that's where we are in our story. Now they've been traveling for several chapters now from Sinai toward the promised land. And along the way, they've had like just mistake after mistake after mistake. They grumble at their leadership guiding them along the way because that's what happens when you're on a difficult journey. It's all of your anxieties and fears, all of your worst instincts, they sort of show up. And it turns out that even though God has saved these people from slavery, there is still so much of that old condition embedded within them. And it comes out again in this story. So right before this, in Numbers 13, is the story of the spies. We spent three weeks here together. They send out spies into the land of promise. And they bring back a report that the land is good, but that the land is scary. And so they balk at going into the land. They have to plan to go back home. A bunch of people die. This happens a lot. They sort of fail. They, they stumble along the way or they revolt. Then there is this big catastrophe and consequence. And then they take the next step. 
It's kind of like one step, one step, one step, one step, and they're, but they're moving ever so slowly. If the book of Numbers teaches us anything, it's that moving from bondage to freedom takes a long, long time. It takes generations. So that's where we are this morning. Moses and Aaron are in charge of the people. But as already happened before, there is this challenge to their leadership. Now, the Bible takes really serious the challenge to this sort of divinely appointed leadership. It threatens the stability of the society, but over and over again it happens. So you've got these three characters. You've got Korah, who's leading the revolt, and then you've got these two other characters, Dathan and Abiram. And they start to stir up the people, because this is what happens. Let me just say, just as a side note, I have been working in churches for a long time. Who has spent more than like five or ten years of their life in churches, whether it's this one or other churches? Just show your hands. And let me ask this question, but you don't have to raise your hands. Have you ever heard people whispering in the hallways and grumbling in like side huddles? Never here. And actually, this is what I was going to say, at least for the time that I've been here. This is not as much a condition that plagues this congregation. However, it is very unique that it does not plague this congregation. Because every other church where I've worked or I've served, this sort of thing happens over and over and over again. Uh, sometimes it's because leadership is crummy, but often it's because leadership is moving people into spaces that are uncomfortable. And in that movement of transformation and discomfort, people start to get antsy. And so I just want to pause for a second and say thank you. Uh, and also to recognize whatever is being cultivated here is a good thing. There is very little of this sort of like, where are you taking us and why are you taking us and hold the phone and let me go get my gun and then we can have a conversation. Like that doesn't happen. You think I'm joking? I have a friend who pastored in Florida and do you know this story? And he said something that it was quite biblical, but was not necessarily very, um, at the moment acceptable. And he had a, uh, a hymnal that he, they would keep for the preacher like because they would sit up in these chairs you remember when the pastor used to sit up in these chairs for the whole service and they would sit up and hear he opened his hymnal one day after the congregation was mad at him and he found like a death threat in it right this stuff is real and it still happens so thank you this is not a scary sermon for me because this is the church where i preach okay you with me here we go so you've got these three folks and they start to whisper and start to have these ideas that maybe Moses is not the only one who should be in charge. Maybe Moses is overreached. Maybe Moses is taking them in the wrong direction. Moses and Aaron become sort of the pillars of leadership here. If you remember in Exodus 3, God calls Moses and Moses says, I don't want to do this. And he says, I'm not really good at speaking. And God says, that's fine. You may not be great at speaking, but I'm going to give you a mouthpiece, Aaron, who is very good at speaking. And the two of you together will help move these people from bondage into freedom, from its Ryan into Mirchav, from a narrow place into a wide and expansive place. Over and over again, they're challenged. And these are the three that challenge them this time. And it never just stops at the three. Because if whisper campaigns are good for anything, they are for gathering support. How many former ministers are in the room? Ken, I'm looking at you. Champ, Judy, <laughs> Perlman. You know what I'm talking about. If it wasn't in your congregations, you had friends that you talked to where this whisper campaigns and they spread. 
this sort of, it's called Lashon Hara in the Hebrew scriptures. It's the evil tongue. The rabbis have very strict consequences for the evil tongue, for slanderous speech or for gossip. It is deadly and is deadly in this story. But they gather around them some 250 co-conspirators. All of the sudden, these three have become many. And what happens when you gather people around an anxious core is they function like a mob and they move together. You see this even in the New Testament in the crucifixion. When just a few people whip up the rest of the crowd into screaming chants of violence, kill him, crucify him. That is mob mentality moving in. And that's what happens in this story. And they have this complaint. And this complaint is just the worst sort of complaint. It happens in verse 3. They assembled against Moses and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far. All the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. There's different ways to translate this phrase, you've gone too far. You could also say, like, there's too much that is for you. It is this sense of overreach, and that's what they're complaining about, that Moses and Aaron have overreached their mandate. But this is the phrase that's really stupid. All of us, and this is how I would translate it, for real, everyone is holy. On the face of it, that sounds biblical. It shows up in different parts of the Old Testament that this nation is supposed to be holy to God. In the middle of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 19, there is this core commandment that becomes emblematic for the nation of Israel. Be holy as God is holy. It actually doesn't say you are holy because God is holy. It says to be or to become holy. That holiness, that journey toward what God is like, is itself a journey. And what Korah and the rebels do is they assume everything about what it means to be near God. As though their nearness to God is their sort of power. And they make this sweeping statement that sounds so self-righteous that again, I recognize it. I swear, I promise. By the way, this entire sermon is making me very grateful for you, but I'm going to go back to my friend from Florida. Uh, I promise you, whoever left that death threat in his hymnal definitely had a sense of holy justice, a sense of righteousness at the task. Because we always are the heroes in our own story. And so that's what's happening here. All of us are holy. Everyone is holy, not just you, the rebels say. And so they put this sort of stop to Moses and Aaron and This is so disappointing for Moses. He's been over this over and over again. And so he falls down. It says they fall on their faces, silent. Then they say, in the morning, the Lord is going to make known who's holy and who's allowed to approach him. The one he will choose, he will allow to approach him. And then Moses says, it's not me that has gone too far as overreached you have overreached. Get into this back and forth, which is never a good idea. Usually this happens in business meetings. Usually this happens whenever a vote's being taken and accusations start to fly. We have one business meeting a year and all God's people said. 
This is what they imagine. This is what the rebels feel like Moses and Aaron are doing. It feels like they are squeezing them out. It is good to remember that this entire nation has been a people in captivity for all of their lives and all of their existence. And so they only know one kind of leadership. And that kind of leadership is always oppressive. And so even if they are given a leader that is tender and caring for them, one that leads through service, they still imagine the fist. They still imagine the heel on their neck. That is just their reality. And so they keep using these phrases of, like, Moses, who anointed you to rule over us? We're all holy. They say it again a little bit later. Moses calls for Dathan and Abiram, and it says, we will not come up. We will not arise, the text says. Is it too little that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you also are going to lord it over us? Again, you can hear their broken memory. Is it not enough that you brought us out of, not Egypt, not a land of captivity and destruction, but they remember Egypt as the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. These words, they matter, and speech creates realities, and the reality that is being created by these rebels' speech is just this sort of slap across the divine. God brought them out of a land of slavery, but they remember it as the land where everything was working for them. And they feel like the place they are being brought is the grave. They just don't know what's happening. They can't feel reality and its truth. It is clear you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not rise up. They say it twice. They start their phrasing, we will not rise up. And then they end it, we will not rise up. And that's where our reading ended today. It's this aggressive posture that they take toward Moses and Aaron. They feel like they're being squeezed out, so they reach and they begin to squeeze. And there's hundreds of them. So this is a pretty fraught situation. But Moses being Moses says there are different ways that we can handle this. How about we just ask God to give a show of who is chosen and who is worthy to come close. One of these phrases that they say sticks out to me. It says, uh, who made you ruler over us? They say it in different ways a couple of times. Because the only way that they imagine power is, uh, is in hierarchy. It's sort of a will to power, and power exists only if somebody is oppressing somebody else. And so if they're not in charge, then they must be the ones that are oppressed. And they would much prefer to be the oppressor, so if they could flip the thing around. This is not the first time that Moses has heard this, and now I'm getting excited. <laughs> this is not the first time that Moses has heard this. Uh, let me tell you just a minute about Moses. Moses exists in a place between realities, between identities. Moses is born to the Hebrew people, but he's born at a time where it's really dangerous to be a young baby who comes from the slave nation because there's been a decree put out by the rulers that all babies, especially male babies, are to be killed if they come from the Hebrew people because there's just too many of them. And there's this fear that they're going to multiply to a level that they might make their own army in captivity and revolt against the powers that be. So Pharaoh puts out an order to kill all the babies. Moses is born and is sort of sent off into anonymity. On a river in a basket. You remember this story from your children's Bibles. And the princess of Egypt finds the basket and takes Moses into her home, into the court. Moses grows up as the prince of Egypt. 
But he is also, you remember the movie? He is also from the Israelite people. He has both of these realities inside his bones. He was raised by the very people who are oppressing his own. So there comes a point in the story as Moses has come of age, and he is, right, he is like the cream of the crop from the palace, from the court, and he's walking through watching the day laborers as they are working on all these various building projects, and he sees, he sees one of these Egyptian slave masters beating one of the Hebrew people. And this sparks his sense of justice. If you wonder maybe why Moses was chosen by God, it's because Moses seems to have this moral core and center that continues to develop. And he sees this injustice and reacts. Now, he doesn't react exactly with chill. He reaches out and he kills the Egyptian and then buries the Egyptian's body in the sand and kind of freaks out that maybe he's been seen. Then the next day, he goes back out and he sees two Israelites fighting with one another. And he's like, y'all, there's already enough people fighting against us. We, we're of the same people. Settle down. And what do they say to him? They say, who named you ruler over us? They say, who told you you could play the prince? It is the exact same charge that is leveled to him in Numbers 16. Who told you that you could play the prince over us, Moses? And it has been his fear and his story the whole time. When God shows up to Moses and calls him in Exodus 3, his concern is that they will not listen. His concern is not exactly that God isn't strong enough to free them from Pharaoh's grip. It's that the people are not going to listen to what Moses says. And he's not wrong. They don't. They doubt and they push and they attack. And they charge him with this over and over again. Who is Moses belong to? Who are Moses' people? Can Moses be trusted? And by extension, can this God be trusted? And so this is what Moses says is going to happen. Assemble the people and I'll assemble. So Coral assembled a whole congregation against him at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then in verse 19, and the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole congregation. The word is kavod. The glory of the Lord appeared to the whole congregation. Now, kavod is this fast, fascinating word. It means glory, but it also means like weightiness, the sense of substance and stability, but also of power. And kavod is not neutral. The people all claim that they are holy. We are holy, all of us, every single one of us, which assumes that they can handle God's kavod, that they can draw near. This is a terrible estimation because it turns out that being in the presence of the living God is not a safe endeavor. Over and over again in this journey, the people have said, like, that God seems a little bit scary. So we're going to go stand over here. And Moses, you go talk to God. This seems like a safe distance. Maybe not. I'm going to go a little further. That's their story is they move away from this God because they know this God has power. So what has happened in this distance of time that they assume they can come close? The glory of the Lord shows up in the midst of the assembly. Which means the story is taking on this electricity. 
Yesterday I was switching out a, uh, just a light switch in our uh, hall bathroom. And Dave, I was thinking of you because anytime I do anything in my house, I just say like, what would Dave do? And then that's what I try to do. And so, of course, what the first thing I did before I started this work was I cut the power to the house. Good, good call, correct? Because I have changed a light before, changed out a fan without doing that, and I was on a ladder and it knocked me off the ladder uh, when I was much younger. So I learned. It only happened once. And uh, no, it happened twice when I was a kid. I also stuck scissors in a socket and learned something then, too. Um, you did that, too? I also cut, cut an iron cord with scissors. I have a bad history with electricity. Uh, but the other day when I was changing, I cut the power, right? And to cut the power back on while all those wires are alive, it could invite a lot of, a lot of electricity, a lot of energy to move through the space. And that is not exactly safe. The glory of the Lord appeared in the midst of the assembly. In Exodus 34, after another catastrophe with the people at the golden calf, Moses needs a sign that God is still their God. And Moses asks, can I just see your kavod? Can I see your glory, God? And God's response is like, well, it's definitively terrifying. No one shall see me and live. That is the deep reality of God's glory. It is this overwhelming presence. And you don't treat it lightly. You don't move toward it with dumb intentions. And you don't claim more than you should claim in that space. The posture of moving towards God's kavod, it's humility. (laughs) When Moses meets this God on Sinai in the burning bush, Moses takes his shoes off because he understands that the place where he's standing is weighted with that presence. It's holy ground. So you've got these people full of pride, claiming holiness, about to encounter the living God, full of glory. This is not going to go well. So Moses says, here's how this is going to go. God's glory shows up. If you all end up living through it, and you all die a normal death of old age, or getting eaten by a bear, I don't know the ways you die in the wilderness... But if you don't die in this space, then I've not been chosen. However, if the ground opens and swallows you, then you will know that God has chosen me. Moses is putting his entire reputation on the line and again creating a reality with language. And the text says, as soon as he stops speaking, it says the ground opens in hunger And eats them. Let me read for you the section. As soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, along with all of their households, everyone who belonged to Korah, and all of their goods. So they all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them, and they were lost. From the assembly. The people understandably panic and they flee and they say the ground is going to swallow us up too. One of the things 
One of the central failings of these rebels in this story is they underestimate everything. They underestimate God, God's power. They underestimate the way that even the ground and the earth is involved in God's glory and holiness. They assume so much about themselves and they diminish the truth of every situation around them. And where they end up is buried alive in the grave. The place where they are buried, the place where they go down into, the text says is Sheol. Sheol, over time in the Hebrew scriptures, becomes a lot of other things and expands into our understanding of something like hell or the place of the dead. But Sheol is at a root level just where you go when you die. Sheol is known as a couple of things. It's known as the place of darkness. It's also known usually as the place of sleep. And it's known as the place of silence. This has been hinted at throughout the story. When Moses goes to ask Dathan and Abiram what the deal is, what do they answer? Twice, at the beginning and the end of their speech. We will not come up. We will not rise up. And what happens to them? Literally, they sink down. Moses keeps asking for speech from them. Let's just have a conversation and see if we can speak this thing into peace. And they fall silent. They've already been in the place of the dead for quite a long time. Reality just catches up with them. And so they are in the place of darkness and silence. The book of Numbers is a tragedy. The first Sunday we preached on this book, we talked about the census. Numbers one, there's this counting that takes place. Got to figure out how many people we have so that we can make sure that we have that many people when we get to the next stop and the next stop and the next stop. How many people we lost along the way. And we said that first Sunday that they do a second counting 26 chapters later. And in that second counting, there's this little throwaway verse. I think it's in verse 64. Uh, It says that nobody who was counted in that first census is still alive for the second counting. They have all sunk into the sand. The book of Numbers is a tragedy. It shows us what it costs emotionally, spiritually, collectively to grow up. How much is lost along the way? These people, they serve as a sign of how hard it is to move through the wilderness. Sheol, I want to stay here for just a moment. It is this place where the future has closed down. It is this place where all speech seems to get stuck and can't reach the land of the living or God's ear. It is a land where all options are gone. It is a place of physical death, yes, but it also speaks to another kind of dying. It's the kind that the rebels were already living in before they ever sunk into the ground. And Sheol is not a place that just happens to you at certain points in the future. Sheol can be the place you are in right now. Consequences might have driven you to this place. 
not for a show of hands, but just an honest assessment in your own heart. Have you felt this? This shadows that fall. The inability to articulate the pain that you are feeling and the hopelessness of the moment. Addiction feels like this. Chronic illness feels like this. It feels like a perpetual sort of dying. And prayers don't feel like they work. And God does not seem to hear. I've spoken with so many people who in their own language have articulated that we have sunk into the place of silence. And we don't know how to get out. And this is where we leave them. This is where we leave this story. One of the fears that we carry around with us is this is where God might leave us. In the sunken down place. In this finality, I can start to feel suffocating. My prayer for you, those of you who are in this space, who are walking with someone who is stuck in this grave, is that you would at least be able to be honest with where you are. Telling the truth about our situation and our circumstances is the first step into anything new. To name it. What is the first step in recovery if not to name the way your addiction is working on your life? The way that your decisions and the choices have brought you into a land you did not want to be in, have no business making company with. Let me pray with you. God, I pray for my friends here, family. Pray especially for those who are in the place of shadows. Help us to figure out how far your reach actually is. Comfort us even when nothing else seems to matter. Hear our prayers. Amen. I want to read for you one more passage. It's from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help, like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. 
You have made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call to you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? I, O Lord, I cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults. They destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides, they close in on me. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions, utter darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story seems so done. If there's anything final, it's the grave. However, there is this tradition of speaking with the text. Uh, it's called the Talmud. The Talmud is known as the Oral Torah. It is all of the tradition that surrounds the central text of Torah and then the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Talmud is a sort of commentary upon. And the Talmud, the, the rabbis, the sages, they ask this question. And I love the way that they ask this question. Are the core conspirators destined to ascend from the underworld? Now, why do they ask this question? One of the things that the Talmud does, and one of the things that I always invite you to do with the scriptures, is look for the places of inconsistency or contradiction, because often those are there to stir you into questions that lead to new kinds of answers. Because the place of the grave, when the ground closes in over you, Sheol and darkness and silence, that feels like the end of a story. The end of speech. You heard the Psalm 88. It is the sound of what it sounds like to cry from the grave. It is probably the only Psalm attributed to the dead. Which begs the question, I thought you couldn't talk in the place of the dead. I thought it was the land of silence. How does this Psalm even exist? Here's why they ask that question about the Korites. Are they destined to ascend from the underworld? Because the text says... Well, this is going to be fun, y'all. It says that when the ground opens up and swallows them, that they all go down alive into Sheol. It says that they are lost to the congregation, but the text does not explicitly say that they died. And in fact, if you go to Numbers 26, this story gets retold. It's around verse 9. They're counting, right? These are the descendants of so-and-so, the descendants of so-and-so. These are the same Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who rebelled against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they rebelled against the Lord. Remember this? The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when the company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. You remember that story? You remember it was just last week? Of course they remember. It's a terrible story. And then it says in verse 11, notwithstanding, the sons of Korah did not die. The text says, and it uses the word coal, all. It says all over and over and over again. That all of Korah's people, all of Korah's stuff, all of Korah's debt, all of Korah's 
like everything, all the donkeys, all of the houses and all of the tents, it all sinks down. So what is this line doing in here? Notwithstanding, the sons of Korah did not die. And then if you turn to Psalm 88, the Psalms often come with the first verse that is an attribution. Who wrote this psalm? This is the psalm of the sons of Korah. They are crying in the shadowlands, in the place where silence is supposed to reign. Speech breaks forth. Inside these internal contradictions comes the question, how? Are they destined to ascend from the underworld? And from this contradiction arises what becomes a theology of the resurrection of the dead. And out of this new emerging understanding that there might be something after that finality, steps another character onto the story. It's right in the middle of the psalm. Psalm 88, verse 11. Is your chesed, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? It is a question that begs an answer. It's the question that we will leave ourselves with today. And it is a question that is answered, how? You see, you can say it. It's the right answer. With some authority. Let's try it again. I don't know how we believe this, but let's... Is God's love declared in the grave? We believe this by hope. What I've come to believe is that Psalm 88 is the psalm that Jesus sings on Saturday. Friday is this moment of death. Jesus literally sinks down into the place of darkness. Literally. And everyone who sees this happen, all of the disciples, they assume what all of us assume about death, which is it is the end of the story. Nothing gets said after this. Nothing is done after this. This is the end. And so the question always rings forth, is God's love declared even after all words have ceased? Is there a word after the last one? Is there anything after the grave? It is the question that we live with because the grave, because death is that which takes everything from us. Paul names it as the last enemy. Even in this old story in the book of Numbers, it stands as a warning that yes, there are consequences for sin that bury you. And all speech stops, even the tradition, even the scriptures break forth in a way that feels like a contradiction but is in fact an opening for God to keep speaking. And what does God's voice sound like? If not the voice of Jesus crying out. Love is stronger than the grave. And God's love will break through all of our endings. This is the hope that we cling to. Because our story is not done. God is not done with us. So if you find yourself weighed down low and you think you've come to the end, 
And maybe you've experienced many endings and many losses that you don't think can be recovered. Far more can be mended than you know, friends. God is not done. Would you pray with me now? We confess that our vision is limited, God. And we confess that we have assumed too much of ourselves and too little of you. But you have called us to be a people of hope. Not those who will avoid suffering, so forgive us for trying to make everything easy. But you are the one who says we can move through suffering with you. That we might even move through death with you. And that we will watch as you work your glory and power out even in the place of defeat. The place of destruction and the place of all of our endings. You start a new story and a new beginning. God, we are ever grateful. Help us to believe. Help our unbelief and our partial belief. Wake us up in body, soul, and mind. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.